Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Cargo of Bricks, brought to you by Slugger O'Toole's Reset Project and kindly sponsored by Ulster Bank. Now this week's guest is Dr Ali Fitzgibbon, who is a researcher, programmer and consultant. And as a lecturer at Queen's University, I wanted to know what cultural industries are, how they've been affected by the lockdown and why any of the rest of us should even care. So the cultural industries is a term that's used to describe all manner of things that relate to art and cultural activity. And the term industries means that it is in some ways a business. It, you know, it is people who earn a living from it. There is some kind of productivity arising from it. And lots of different researchers over the years have kind of scrutinized that and kind of questioned what's the product, what's the service, what is cultural production. Um, you can say cultural industries possibly is a distinct way of describing artistic work and cultural work and cultural activity that's not quite the same as when we talk about creative industries and creative industries tends to be used more generally to describe the more commercially oriented activity compared to so gaming digital vr might be used to might be described as creative industries whereas live music drama different kinds of arts practice might be described as within the cultural industries or they might be placed within the arts But in general, these are terms and definitions that are quite fluid because where do you draw the line between a commercial activity like a West End show like Hamilton or um, something that is a socially engaged practice, maybe a programme that runs as an arts education programme that is run on a semi-commercial basis? Is that creative industries? Is it not? And that tends to get very blurry and very grey. And in general, people tend to divide it down saying the creative industries makes profit and the arts and cultural industries don't. But even then we get into kind of very grey territory. So that probably is like not a good way of explaining what is the cultural industries, but it's the the best way I can. And why is it important? Well, I suppose the question I would ask is why is it not important? Why do we need to justify any sense of creativity being an important part of our lives if we daily get up, we read books, we listen to music, um, we entertain ourselves, we do go to see shows, our children experience stuff in their schools, in their youth groups. Our children essentially are creative, they draw, they articulate things, they play games, they imagine. So why is creativity not absolutely central to our lives? And if so, there are people who make a living creating work and working with people to help them have more creative lives. So to me, it's important because it is important. It is part of what makes us human. Um, more generally, there are lots of questions that get happened that get that happen in the kind of policy discussions. So very quickly, when we say why is it important, what we talk about is why is it not the subject of government policy? Why are politicians not involved in it? Why don't they care about it? Why don't they fund it? And that's actually to me a different conversation, which is how are our political structures deciding what is the most important thing for them to spend their budgets on. And that's not the same conversation as saying what is important to human life. And maybe these two things could be brought a bit more closely together. Sure. And we've seen, um, I mean, obviously lockdown has had massive implications for performing arts, you know, whether it's bands, whether it's the theatre, whether it's opera, because that requires people to spend money on tickets, to come to a venue, to sit in rows where they no longer are allowed to congregate. 
And, you know, we've seen stand-up comedians. I mean, basically the whole thing's grown to a halt. So that's obvious. And that's something that we obviously we want to talk about in this conversation. But can you give us a little bit of the context leading up to this this particular moment uh, and why perhaps... It's particularly challenging for people in in cultural industries. Okay. Um, going forward. So leading up to this, probably what we have seen is a massive change in how people cons- consume culture over the last twenty to thirty years. So whereas people used to have to go to the cinema to see a film, now you can summon it up on your phone as you go to work. So there's been a massive change. And in the midst of that, you have what would broadly be described as like the live events sector. So music, comedy, theatre, dance, all of these things which require you to see an artist perform their work live or see a recording of the artist performing their work live or listen to the recording of the artist performing their work live. And in that industry, what we have looked at over the last 20 or 30 years is a systemic dismantling of some of the traditional ways in which it was done and some of that's very good and some of that has been about breaking down the closed shops of say record labels or closed houses in terms of um, like large theatres only working with white people for example would be one of the examples that comes up Um, but we haven't seen necessarily a dismantling in a good way in that we've also seen quite a lot of deregulation. We've seen the collapse of traditional ways of working, which provided more solid contracts of work, more regular payment levels, um, certainly in terms of theatre, which is possibly an area that I particularly know more about. You've seen the way in which freelancers are protected by, say, union agreements has completely collapsed. And so as time has gone on, the gig economy, which was always central to the way arts and cultural industries functioned, and probably a lot more than many other sectors that would be deemed kind of skilled professions. Um, that has, in, has grown and become more precarious. And very particularly in the UK, the UK is considered more, the creative industries in the UK are considered more precarious than potentially in other countries because those protections were eroded so significantly. So before the pandemic started, we were seeing massive problems with precarious working artists earning very small amounts of money for their work, despite the fact that the industry was contributing to the economy, contributing to kind of social life, contributing to that human uh, human experience. So lots of people were asking the question, why is this happening? Um, why can't we fix this? Why can't we address it? And lots of people would point to problems with funding and the massive cuts that were brought about as a result of the global recession in 2008. In Northern Ireland, um, there was not that much of a difference before the recession as after, in the sense that the arts and cultural scene in Northern Ireland never really saw any element of the peace dividend. There were not increases in funding when the Assembly was set up. In fact, if anything, the situation for funding in Northern Ireland has got worse and worse and worse. So... What you were looking at was essentially a starvation, death by a thousand cuts economy that was then being pushed onto an increasingly precarious workforce. So what was going on before the pandemic happened was pretty bad. Um, In addition to that, there were lots of other factors going on, such as looking at the diversity of who gets to make, like if you look at the Black Lives Matter campaign, why do Black Lives Matter we were looking at in the arts, culture and creative industries, 
lots of problems with the representation of black, Asian minority ethnic artists, uh, their lack of representation within the workforce more generally, um, the fact that they wouldn't necessarily, they were much less likely to be represented in managerial positions. And we also were looking at things like gender inequality. You had the Me Too movement that was massively triggered by the kind of film industry that was also happening in theatre. People were talking about it in the galleries and museums. So we had kind of fairly major problems of inequality, exploitation, bullying, harassment and precarious work. So it was a bit of a kind of negative environment to be working in. And then a global pandemic hit. And what you saw was, as with so many other areas, and, you know, I do not say that the arts and cultural industries have a really exceptional position in this, but, you know, like many other areas that were already precarious, they were just simply tipped over the edge um, in terms of the loss of livelihoods, the transfer of the inequalities that were in the industry, moving into the digital space and moving into the kind of wage-free space, the lack of support, the lack of cover by furlough schemes, all of those things simply amplified many of the problems that we could always see already see there. So what we're facing is the thing that gives us our essential human experience is now in a deep, deep human crisis. So you have people whose entire livelihoods and the future of their careers has been wiped out. So that's the kind of negative picture we're sitting in right now. Well, it is, but I mean, but it is what it is, and it has been. I mean, the, the you know the financial crisis of two thousand and eight to two thousand and twelve was often uh, described as a kind of a heart attack for the banking system. This, you could say, was something of a, I mean, really quite a graphic way of describing what's happened to the to the cultural industries you know mm. as you say you make that distinction between cultural industry industries and creative industries you know there there are aspects of the creative industries that have, have not only uh, done well they've done exponentially well as more people stay at home and watch netflix uh, they you know the gaming companies uh, you know they've been able to continue well, doing have they really because i think that was fine in the first in the first number of weeks when you saw people staying at home and watching netflix the problem is that we have now is who's going to make the things. So we've already seen the BBC advancing um, things like Killing Eve. They brought out season three. And they, you could say that quite legitimately they did that because they were trying to provide some kind of respite from, you know, they were trying to provide respite by showing a drama about a serial killer. It's great. Um, but the reality is that all the people who worked in those things, who made those programs, the actors, the people who made who pulled the lights, the people who worked in costume, all of those people were out of work in March and they're not going to be employed again. And if they are, they're doing it under extremely difficult, socially distant circumstances. So you're hearing about actors being told that they have to do their own makeup. So what about all the makeup artists who are out of work? Um, if we look at the mixed ecology, and this is where I think there has been a major problem, is that the the policies that have been issued under the pan pandemic are exactly the same misconceptions about how these industries work and the complex ecology is that they don't take into account the quite complex blend of working that people have. So there are people working in Northern Ireland who have never had, you know, they have done quite well out of kind of that creative and cultural industries brand. So they might be people working in te technical work, they might work in stage productions one week. They might work in big concerts the next week. They might be going on a world tour the next week. They might be working on a film set and, uh, 
sometime later in the year. Film, gener- film and television generally only film for short periods of time. And then the rest of the year, these people work on other stuff. So they have multiple sources of income, all of which have disappeared. And with that, we, are, we will run out of things for people to watch. We will run out of things for people to produce. And even things like the National Theatre trawling its archive and broadcasting its stage productions for free has been done without payment to the people who actually were standing, having their, you know, making the work, performing the work. So I particularly look at performing artists in this because actually in every direction, they're being dealt body blows of loss of livelihood. Um, That is actually quite exceptional. And the creative industries might be doing well in the short term in terms of immediate viewership, but that's not making money. And it's also not paying people's people's incomes so we are looking at people losing their homes going to food banks who are they are the creative talent that we talk about being so important they are the skilled labor force that's supposed to be bringing us out of the 2008 recession and yet they've just been left and when I say they've been left they've been left out of the furlough schemes because they weren't eligible for those a large number of them that had set up their own businesses. Um, say if you're a freelance, uh, say a freelance photographer, if you're a freelance lighting designer, you might have been given advice to set up your own business. Um, you won't be eligible for many of the benefits from that. If you don't own premises, you didn't get any business exemptions. And with the self-employed support scheme, it's based on people who own and run their own businesses as self-employed people, as opposed to the model of mixed portfolio working that people who work in the arts have. So freelance, I, I know of at least one person who is a freelance performer, who's also a specialist at working in communities, who also had a contract as an actor, which put them on the payroll for 16 weeks of the previous year. And because they'd been on payroll, they weren't eligible for the self-employed support scheme, or they got like, you know, a fraction. So you have people who have been working constantly, increasingly getting less and less money, they have no savings, they have no reserves, they have no backup, and their work disappeared overnight. And when I say overnight, I mean overnight. I sat with somebody in the second week in March who was an outdoor circus performer, and he had lost six months of work because other parts of Europe shut down earlier. And so all the summer programs are cancelled. And as an outdoor performer, his work is seasonal. He makes his entire living between March and September. And he had lost virtually all of his work for the year in the space of 72 hours. So that's how radical it was. And this was somebody who's never, he's never signed on. He's never needed anything. He's never asked for anything. He doesn't get public funding. He's not looking for a handout. The nature of the industry is such that it is completely decimated in the most dramatically human way. And I think we have lots of questions to ask about what is it we as a society are losing by not seeing the disaster that is currently underway in people's lives and livelihoods at the moment. What's really fascinating about that is how really you paint a picture of people who live locally but who are engaged in an industry which has no borders, no boundaries. You yeah. Know, um, you know, people like makeup artists, people who work in, as technicians within theatre or film or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one, I think one of, the, one of the few successes within the cultural industry since... Stormont began was the, you know, bringing films, bringing big enterprises like the Game of Thrones to Belfast, which in a sense then the real opportunity of that is creating a skills base that wasn't previously there. Um, 
And really, to some extent, it's great for politicians to get the kudos of having something big like that come in. But then what is it what is it they need to do to begin to really protect that skill space? Because all of these people, as we know, people and we know it from the we know it from the last recession, is that people are more mobile than they've ever been before. It's not the case mm-hmm. as it was in my grandparents' time that you just get on a boat in Derry and, and go to Philadelphia and nobody ever sees you again. You know, and those people may well come back, but if you don't protect, protect the, the local skills base, then you lose that. You lose that asset that was fought for. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would probably counter that and say, I don't think the bringing of films to Northern Ireland created the skills base that was here. I think the skills base was here and was used to generate interest in the film industry. That skills base came in part, not entirely, from other art forms. So the people who ended up working as crew actually were people who were also working in music and performing arts and live arts. And I, I don't want to get overly hung up because, I mean, I do I do know that there's also the huge, huge swathe of work that Northern Ireland actually, in the 80s and 90s, was world famous for, which was its socially engaged practice, its work in communities, its grassroots artists developing. I mean, if I look at some of the work that Richard Duffy was doing in the 80s and 90s with, early, with artists, um, you know, the development of the neighbourhood open workshops, you know, Dock Ward Community Theatre, some of the amazing work that's happened, the Playhouse up in Derry. You know, when you look at those things, these are things that were born out of a need for the for the human people of Northern Ireland to express themselves. So that bedrock of creative skills predates the film industry. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't Lenny Abrahams or Lenny coming into town. It was somebody like Mark Huffam, whose father delivered kit to the Lyric Theatre and you know he used to sit in the van and do bits of work you know Mark Hoffman's brilliant he he brought that brought Game of Thrones to Northern Ireland but he didn't make the costume people that they used he didn't make the technicians the cast you know Conleth Hill was a well-established highly successful actor in his own right before anything came along that put him into it and shaved his head so we have to think about, I think my my thinking in terms of what politicians need to think about is to stop saying, oh, the arts needs to pay for itself or the arts needs to stop having its begging bowl out and start thinking, well, why is the arts being asked to do so much with so little? And when we're talking about a crisis of workforce, why is it that politicians aren't seeing it? And my feeling is the reason they don't see it is partly their own hang-ups and their own feelings of... Uh, concern about um, what is what is the arts and the, the feeling that it's somehow this elitist thing that's over there by being done by rich people. These are not rich people. These are people who live, these are your neighbours, these are the people who live in your street, who work with your kids in your kids' schools and they are absolutely desperate. These are also your voters, they're your taxpayers, they are the people of Northern Ireland um, They're also, to some extent, people who also imbue the place with a sense of pride through some of this cultural production. And I think I think what you've given there is a really interesting overview of how the ecology of the arts actually yeah. works. Uh, slowly, over time, <laughs> you know, but to, to, to create kind of um, social goods yeah. that, that otherwise we simply wouldn't have. I mean, there's an interesting... There's an interesting um mixture of things that one of the things I think we need to look at in Northern Ireland and this was something that uh, some of us uh, were talking about before we 
suddenly found ourselves in a pandemic. And I took part in a global discussion back in April with 150 people from around the world um, talking about the future of international touring. What a number of us have been interested in when we're talking about sustainability, and this is a word that gets thrown about all the time, sustainability, resilience. When we talk about sustainability as an island, and no matter which way we look at it, we're an island off the coast of an island, off the coast of a continent. We need to think in big terms about what that means. So international touring, I was part of a meeting where we were discussing the future of international touring in coronavirus circumstances. And the mixed economy and the mixed cultural referencing points of touring. So touring companies like theatre companies who are based in Belfast, who've been taking their work across the world and bringing it back and creating that synergy and representing a version of Northern Ireland that's entirely different. It's kind of making Northern Ireland known for things that are not the things it is most negatively known for. That has an economy and ecology and a kind of an environmental consideration that we're not thinking about. So Northern Irish politicians and Northern public sector and the arts and cultural industries as a whole need to start thinking about what's going to happen when the sea levels rise, when the planes don't come back online, when we can't travel, when we can't tour, but we have all of this new digital communication. How are we going to find a way of creating our own sustainable creative ecology that has work being performed in our art centres, people being able to access you know, programs in their communities. What's going to happen to the kind of sustainability of creative life in rural Fermanagh or in Straban? You know, what happens when the artists who want to live there, they want to live there. If you look at a choreographer like Dylan Quinn down in Fermanagh, he wants to live in Enskillen because that's where he comes from. How are we going to create a thriving ecology that can live within itself and also see itself exporting its work in a different way, in a new way? Um, those are the kinds of things we actually have to start thinking about. And I think coronavirus is making us think in the same way we're thinking about supply chains and food supply and things like that. We're having to start thinking much more uh, kind of credibly about what sustainability means within the boundaries of the six counties. Now, I'm just going to finish off by really, if we're considering how we... It more broadly, not just within the cultural industries, but more broadly, how we can reset society um, post-COVID. How do we go about doing things differently? My feeling is, and this is, I get, I find it hard to talk about the arts and cultural, not to talk about the arts and cultural industries, because I think one of the things is we need to completely rethink what we mean by work and what we mean by payment for work. Um, all of the problems that are emerging socially in terms of poverty, loss of earnings, loss of livelihoods are based on people losing jobs that are traditional jobs or people losing revenue because they worked in the gig economy and our tax and social welfare systems aren't set up to deal with that. They're not dealing with the modern economy as it actually is. They're dealing with a version of the economy that's post-industrial. So my major shift that needs to happen is we do need to start talking about things like universal basic income it's not without its problems but it does have benefits um some of the inequalities that we saw prior to lockdown that are now persisting in lockdown we have lots of people who are sheltering because they've got you know there are people with disabilities they are highly skilled professionals they cannot come back to work and that's not being accommodated so we need to think very very differently around how we protect kind of our workforce 
as a new form of workforce and re-establish that idea of citizenship. That would be my that would be my opinion. But I think a lot of the problems we are seeing within arts and cultural industries could be resolved by some of those massive things that are nothing to do with arts policy or cultural industries policy, but to do with kind of our understanding of work. Um, I think that would be a very interesting thing. I think the decentralization you talk about, a major problem we've encountered is arts and cultural industries doesn't work within borders, but a lot of the national policy is confusing its borders. So we see UK-wide policy, England-centric policy, and then some national broadcast media. Then we have Northern Irish policy coming a couple of days later that contradicts what's happening a couple of miles down the road. The industry can't cope. The people can't cope. It's too confusing, but it's also inconsistent. So different ways in which we think about our boundaries, borders, nations, and decentralizing how we make decisions needs to change to a more co-designed process. I know that there is interest in that um, within the Northern Ireland Assembly, but it's not its not really been fully enacted in that it requires the public sector to fundamentally change the way they plan and the way they make decisions. Um, co-design isn't about simply having more meetings and consultations. So that's, that's another factor I think we need to think about. Um, and the third factor I think is we need to kind of address what we think about arts and creativity. Um, clearly, everybody's used it in lockdown. We know that it's important. We know that Large members of the public want to be creative and they are being creative in their um, personal lives in a way that they haven't been before or they're being more vocal about it. So why can we stop? Can we not stop having this conversation of why do the arts matter? Why does creativity matter? And start thinking about, well, how do we make life creative? And that has implications for our working environment, what we can access, how do we support libraries, how do we support um, education, how do we support the study of the humanities, all of those kinds of things. Cargo of Bricks and the Reset Project is brought to you by Slugger Tool and Ulster Bank. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode, then please subscribe to us wherever you get your quality podcasts.